welcome all of you all to our time together here. All of you that are joining us live, we welcome all of you wherever you're at in the world tonight. Or somebody that listens to this podcast, we're thankful for your attendance. We're going to get into Hosea chapter 6 tonight. That's where we left off. We'll probably back up a little bit there and take a run and go at it. So uh, let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have left us your word, that you didn't leave us to ourselves. And you said you would send us the Holy Spirit, and you did. You would not leave us as orphans. And so we're thankful, Lord, that you have left your word and your spirit to guide our lives. And we know that the spirit and the word agree. And so we're thankful that we don't have to be searching and confused because your spirit will always agree with your word. And we're thankful, Lord, that you are on our side. You're on our side because of the work of your Son. And he's made us his righteousness. And So, Lord, as we live in these last days, we pray for strength. We pray for direction and guidance. We pray for your help. We want to be found in your will. We pray for the lost. We know the world is on a one-way track, a collision with its destiny, Lord. You have everything laid out in plan. But we want to be faithful. We want you to lead us and direct us. Help us to be quick to repent, swift to hear, slow to speak. That you may use us and speak to us and through us in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the uh, northern tribe is in trouble with God. And God's using this northern prophet, Hosea, who is uh, Hosea, however you want to say his name, is uh, he is the only one, as I've said a couple of times already, the only northern prophet we know that has things written down. But he also speaks to the southern kingdom because the southern kingdom is about 200 years behind the northern kingdom on their punishment. And one of the things that the southern kingdom, which would include Judah and Jerusalem, all that, the priesthood down there, they... Are, they uh, lagged behind because they were still trying to worship and praise God and follow His commands. But uh, they were also supposed to learn from what they saw God doing with Israel. Much of what the rest of the world was supposed to do. Paul introduced us to that concept. He said what happened to Israel is for our learning. So all of us should look to Israel and learn individually, as a family, as a country, as a nation we should learn how God deals with things. So some things are going on here with uh, the northern tribes and what we would call, what was called Israel at the time. And Isaiah, you know, how he pleaded with them and Jeremiah. And finally, when God got to Ezekiel, he said, that's it. Isaiah kept telling Israel, he said, if you would repent, God would stop everything. He would stop all the judgment, all the trouble. If you just would repent. They kept going. Jeremiah, he came along. Same thing. Ezekiel finally came along and said, It don't matter. If you repent now, you're in trouble. Have you ever heard your mother or your father say, If you do that one more time. Now, bad parenting is the parent that they do it one more time and they still do nothing. That's bad parenting. But God's not a bad parent. If he says one more time, then that's all you get. So God, you know, if you remember in Ezekiel, he said it, didn't, it wouldn't matter if Job was here or Daniel was here. 
it wouldn't matter. They could intercede, and you still are going to get, you're still going to get punished. So God has a breaking point. I was listening to Exodus mostly yesterday, um, and I noticed something I hadn't really paid attention to more uh, before. When God sent Moses in, before anything had happened, when God got Moses straightened out and done things he needed to do in him, sent him back down on the way in, God was going to kill him, and he hadn't done what he should have done. He hadn't circumcised his children, his wife. Got upset over it. She circumcised him, threw the foreskin down at his feet, was mad at him. Bad, bad deal going on. But he's on his way back in. And God says to Moses, before anything happened, God said to Moses, he said, I'm going to put this in my own words. You go tell Pharaoh that if he don't let my son go, which was Israel, he said, I'm taking his son. That's how he said it to him. Now, I thought about that. I thought God didn't enumerate all the plagues and all the stuff he's going to do. He just basically said, and we don't have all the recorded conversations between Pharaoh and Moses and Aaron. We have bits and pieces here and there, some of the events that took place. But he was having constant contact, you know, with Pharaoh. And he'd send him out and call him back. And so we don't have all that. But God told Moses, he said, you, basically, you start all this off by saying, you go tell him that if he don't let my son go, I'm taking his son. Now, what's interesting about that, what I believe the Holy Spirit was teaching me, <clears throat> I don't want this in the pulpit where you catch it. <laughs> what he was teaching me was how patient and long-suffering God was. Because that's not where God started. He didn't just come in and destroy Pharaoh's son. He come in with one little plague, then another problem, then another problem. And Pharaoh kept hardening his heart. And Pharaoh wouldn't, wouldn't heed God's judgment. In fact, when they sent the lice... The uh, magicians that were Pharaoh's spiritual guys said, Hey, we can't touch this. That's the finger of God. They even, they even backed off and said, Hey, that's God working. Pharaoh still wouldn't do it. So look how long-suffering and patient God was. He sent nine judgments on, on Egypt, and Pharaoh still would not heed. He, would, he kept hardening his heart. So when you see, and the reason I bring that up, when you see somebody getting judged, whether it's in the Scripture or like a country, or like we, you know, uh, forget all the politics for a minute. Saddam Hussein had went as far as God was going to allow him to go, and he took him out. It doesn't matter what the smoke screens were. When God's done, he's done. If you read about some of the things he did to his people, it's horrendous what he did to some of his own people. And I think God is long-suffering, but there's a point where he says, that's it, you're done. And uh, so... That's you when you see somebody that gets judged by God or a group or a nation, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt God has been so long suffering till they get to that point. And all you got to do about to know about God's long suffering is look in the mirror, right? We know how long suffering God's been. So uh, Israel's in trouble. Judah's on the heels of being in trouble. They're not learning from what they're seeing God do. So idolatry wound up creeping all the way down into the southern kingdom. The tribes got divided after Solomon, right? Rehoboam, Jeroboam, they split up. And that's what happens when Solomon and all the trouble that had come their way. And, and so God's going to reunite them. And he's brought them back together already, getting ready for the end of time. So here's some things you might want to no take note of. Idolatry took Israel and Judah out from under the conviction of their sin. Idolatry took Judah and Israel, first Israel and then Judah, 
out from under the conviction of their sin. You've heard me say this probably during this teaching, actually, that after I, I went back and studied Isaiah about 15, maybe 18 years ago now extensively, and I, I used to say before I really studied it that, that the last straw before a nation was judged was sexual perversion. But as I re-understood Isaiah, the last straw is idolatry because that's the most offensive thing to God is when we call some form of wood or stone or whatever and we start worshiping it and giving it credit for the things in our lives. That's very offensive to God. But one of the reasons I, 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 when I started seeing that, I realized that idolatry was the last straw. Sexual immorality is the stage right before idolatry because when we give ourselves to sexual immorality, we need a God that's okay with it. Because we all have a conscience. There's no way you can convince me that a 40-year-old man don't know that it's wrong to rape a 7-year-old girl. Now, after he yields to that and gets possessed with a demon, all bets are off. I understand that. But initially... We have a conscience. We know that those things are wrong. So if you're going to give yourself to sexual perversion, you have to find a God that's okay with it, right? Or have your conscience seared or both. And James talks about people who get their conscience seared. So that's what happens. They go into idolatry. So what Israel went into idolatry and they, because they were given over to sexual immorality. And God talks a lot about that. We talked about some of that. They're given over to all that. And, and once they cut loose with that, they, needed, they, they had the ways of God. They had a conscience, but they, they wanted to pursue their lust. And so they needed to find a God that said, that's okay. Right? And so, for instance, I'll give you a modern day example. You can't be an addict and go stand before God and say, well, the doctor wrote the prescription. That ain't going to carry no water. Right? We, we are responsible for ourselves. We make our own choices and our own decisions. And so this idolatry was brought in, and so it, 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 Judah resisted it for a while. Now what Israel, I think I've shared this with you, what Israel did in the north, they didn't want to come all the way down to Jerusalem and meet with God, quote unquote. That was their first mistake. They started backing away from their allegiance to God, and they're called to assemble and, and worship and praise and sacrificing. So they made alternate places. I did mention this last week. They made Bethel or Bethel, however you want to say that. And they, they used that as a place. And that was a prominent place for Israel, but it wasn't the place God had called them to worship. And they even made golden, they even made more calves. I don't know if they were golden. They made calves, the northern tribes did, and they called them Jehovah. That's super offensive to God. He said, you shall make no graven image. That's one of the things he told them before they even left Egypt because they'd been exposed to all that. So that's where we're at. And, and so God, let me speak to you in terms of, of God's judgment and how he's dealing with them. And think about this. It says, come let us return to the Lord for he is torn, but he will heal us. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. And after two days... He will revive us. We'll come back to that prophetically later if we have time. And on the third day, He will raise us up that we may live in His sight. I briefly touched on that last week, how that's prophetic about the Lord. But there's something powerful being said here. God is going to scatter Israel. Their idolatry, when they came to the bottom of their idolatry, they were scattered for almost 2,000 years. We are the generation 
and the generation. Some of you are the generation before me and my generation. We're the generation that's seeing all that come back. When Israel became a nation again in 1948, when Jerusalem was, re- was brought back over to them in 1967, we are the people that are seeing them come home after God scattered them. You talk about a horrendous, horrendous judgment. They lost everything. They lost their land, and eventually even the remnant was gone. In A.D. 70, when they came in and ransacked Jerusalem, Rome did, and it's all gone. They lost it all. Now, we're headed that way. We are headed that way as a country. And we're not headed that way because we're not better than other countries. But if we're going to judge ourselves correctly, we're not allowed to judge ourselves based on what Russia does or China does. We were given so many good things by God. We don't, if we're a Pharisee, we'll say, well, America's going to be okay because look at Russia. They're communists and atheistic for the most part. That's not how God works. God said, I'm giving you talents. I gave you five. I gave you two. I gave you one. To whom much is given, much is required. So our problem's not with Russia or not trying to outdo China. Our problem in America is with God. He gave us this land. Everything we have has come from His hand. He blessed us. No nation on earth has been as blessed as we have with the exception of Israel. We're in trouble with God. We are in trouble with God. And we're not really making any headway as a nation to go back. We just keep going the wrong way. Now, we're experiencing, I believe, what we read, what I taught about in Amos, about the nations going under judgment, but there's still pockets of revival. But our nation is in trouble. We've cast God out of everything we can find that we can. And, and we're, we're in a shape now where we're doing like Israel. And we're not learning from Israel. We're not learning from them. We're not paying attention to them. In fact, God's not even really mentioned anymore in, in our congresses for the most part. We do have some Christians that try to stand up. I understand that. But as a group, we're supposed to be a group. And I'll never forget this on 9-11 when that happened. We had two senators from both sides of the aisle. One was a Democrat, one was a Republican, and they both misinterpreted Isaiah. They both misinterpreted And I thought, we're so foolish, we just pull something out of thin air and try to apply it, and we don't even have the backdrop. We don't understand what God's saying to us. But that's where we're at. Israel got there. And Israel got plummeted for that. Now, our, the only thing I can say to you is, I believe America is going to be judged. We don't know which generation it's going to be. We don't know. It may just progressively get worse. But we know God's going to take care of His own. We may be gone. Maybe the church, the true believer, will be gone before it really gets horrendous. But there's no way we can treat God the way we've treated Him here. Not because we're still better than other nations, whatever that means but because of how good He's been to us. And I know that goes against some popular prophetic teaching, that America's coming back. I don't believe that. I believe we've went too far. Now, that doesn't mean people aren't getting saved. We see all that. It doesn't mean God's not going to take care of you and I, but I believe God's got an appointment with America. I believe He's got an appointment with us, and He's going to call our hand of how good He's been to us and how we just keep turning. So God sometimes... We cross a line, and that's what's happening here. They cross the line. God said, I'm, I'm judging you. You went too far. In fact, he did the same thing with Babylon. When he turned Babylon loose on Israel, he turned right around and judged Nebuchadnezzar shortly after that and destroyed them because he said, you guys took it too far. 
And then he talked to Sennacherib, right? The Assyrian king. And he said he used him to judge other people. And then he, got, and then he had to judge Sennacherib because he said, You uh, forgot the hand that swings the axe. Sennacherib was the axe that God was using to bring judgment and punishment. But he forgot that God was doing it and Sennacherib got crazy. Now, here's something you want to think about. They, when they cross over the line, God's going to bring consequences. That's how, maybe how you parented, right? You had a line when somebody, your child crossed, you said, that's it. I was the same way. But many times, and I know this is going to be hard for us to hear, but we all know it's true whether we want to amen it or not. Many times affliction works for our good. And that's, that's not popular preaching anymore. I understand that. But that's reality. Sometimes God uses things to get our attention so that He can correct us. That's, that's, nothing, that's nothing new. When you read John 10, the shepherd, the shepherd plays a flute. He has a staff. He has a sling. He has eye salve. He has all kinds of things, a harp. He has all kinds of things that he does for the sheep to keep them as best as he can. But that sling is not just used to kill Goliath or a, or a lion or a bear. That sling is a lot of times used to startle one of the sheep to get it to not go the wrong direction. So God has a sling, spiritually speaking, and He uses that sling sometimes to startle us to get our attention. He may, listen to what He said. He said, He has torn, but He will heal. Now when the devil tears, He'll leave you to die. I mean, this is not the same country you and I grew up in. I saw the reporter, actually probably listened to the report of a, of a grandmother in New Orleans who was drugged out of her car, beaten severely. Her arm was torn off that caused her to bleed to death in the street by people who carjacked her. That happened in New Orleans just a few weeks ago in this country. And that's a picture of how the devil does, right? He'll tear you to pieces and leave you to die. That's not God. God is redemptive. Right? I shared this a couple of weeks ago. When God brings affliction, He does it to redeem. Right? The devil is punitive. He's out for blood. Right? He's out to destroy us. Now, there's going to be a day in the tribulation period and, and in the great white throne judgment where God's going to be punitive, where there'll be no arguing, just like I shared Sunday, no arguing, you're out. Right? But right now, everything God does is redemptive. He's trying to get our attention. He wants us, and that's what He was trying to do with Judah. Judah was seeing what was happening with Israel. But listen to God's love. He is torn, but He will heal. He is stricken, but He will bind us up. And if you go over to John 10, there's some parallels there. If you study the shepherd, sometimes he would break a lamb's leg. But he would set it, bind it, and then carry it until it was well. That's a good shepherd. A good shepherd knew that if he had a sheep that kept roaming, that that sheep was going to become prey to a mountain lion or a bear or whatever. And that's why when you read about David, he talks about all that. When he goes to kill Goliath, he don't know he's going to kill Goliath, but when he's confronted with Goliath, he didn't take it personal. He took it against his God. That's where our strength comes from. His authority came from God. You, you, if you're trying to fight the devil with your authority, you're messing up. And that's when uh, Michael and Jude, right? When Michael confronted Satan about the body of Moses, 
He said, listen what Michael said. He's an archangel. So you have the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Then you have Michael, Gabriel, and an empty spot where Lucifer lost his spot. But you've got Michael saying to Satan or Lucifer, the Lord rebuke you. He didn't even rebuke him on his own. He said, the Lord rebuke you. He came in God's authority. That's where a lot of Christians are not overcoming the enemy because they're trying to outwit him. You're not, you're not smarter than the devil, except for maybe in one case where he got through out of heaven. That was dumb. But he knows how to work on us. He knows how to do all that. He's been working on men and women for 6,000 years. You and I are not the Johnny-come-lately that the devil can't figure out, right? But we need to go in God's authority, right? And that's what David did. So you see this shepherd. He said, I killed a lion. I've killed a bear. This uncircumcised Philistine, he's going down too, right? Because he knew where his authority, his help had come from. We need to understand that. And so God, he will, he will tear us, he, but he will heal us. He, will, he, may, he is stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, this gets into the prophetic sense of that, because Israel has come back after two days. A thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years, according to Psalm 90. And then Peter reuses that verse in 2 Peter 3. If we have time, we'll go there tonight in a prophetic sense. So he's speaking prophetically. He says that we may live in his sight. And that's prophetically, as we mentioned last week. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. Now, let me tell you what's happened. Primarily, people my age and younger, we've grown, now listen, we've grown up, all of our lawyers, doctors, CPAs, Business people, farmers. Farmers have got more of this thrown at them than probably anybody. Because you go to a science class now in college and see if the first thing they don't hit you with is evolution. Let's get that. They're trying to get God out of the equation as quick as they can. And that's what got me in trouble in college because I wasn't budging. When I went to biology 101 or whatever they called it, and uh, I, they, uh, the question was asked by professor I said he said let's it's something about the beginnings of things right and I said well from God we go and he said Mr. Robbins let's say there's not a God and I said well we can't because there is and so he said let's try this again so I, so I went back the same well right I said but well from God and he said Mr. Robbins let's say there's not a God I said well we can't because nothing would exist so we got to start with him again now grant you I was at a Christian school but it's gotten more Christian than it was when I was there now, thank God. Then he said it again, and I went back to the same well. I kept drinking from the same pitcher. <laughs> Finally, he took the question from me and gave it to somebody else. So when you're in college, they don't send you to the office. You can go to class or not. They don't care if you get your homework or not. It's on you, right? You can waste your money if you want to, and a lot of them do. I'm trying to stay out of the flesh. So I turned my back on him, the rest of the class, and looked out the window. And I made a protest. And the reason I made a protest because I was thinking, how many of these children in this room are going to buy this and swallow it? So I'm going to take my stand right here. I got a C in that class. I barely got out of there alive. I had to study for 12 hours to pass that final exam, or I wouldn't have got out of there. I hated the class. He didn't like me. I didn't enjoy him. And it got bad. But there, we've got generations now, starting with mine, and maybe the generation before mine, but at least with mine, we've got whole generations of whatever the vocation is, from farmer to lawyer, 
primarily people who've been raised outside of God's Word. That's what we have in our nation. It's gotten worse, right? I mean, they're not... You know, Harvard was established in God, beginning. <laughs> they may be the worst one out there that's against God now. I mean, so we're raising up... So the people running our country, there's very few of them that have a biblical worldview. If you don't have a biblical worldview, you probably won't like this church. Because everything we do, we look through here first. But now we've got whole generations of business people, farmers, school teachers. They weren't raised with a biblical worldview. In fact, they started going to colleges and universities that said, that's hogwash. And they started demeaning the Scripture. And now, if you bring up the Scripture in a discussion, you're mocked and maybe even, as I found out, somebody's brother got in trouble in one of our universities in this, in this state for standing up for life when everybody else was standing up for abortion. They were the one that got in trouble in a so-called Christian college again. So you, we are, we've raised up whole generations of people in all kinds of positions out there that don't even give a hoot about God. They're in schools. I'm going to shock you just in a minute. They're in schools. They're in law firms. They're in wealth firms. They're in businesses. They're out on the farm. And they're in the pulpit. We got a guy, I don't remember which branch it is, that's a chaplain in one of our armed services that's an atheist. I'm going to go outside and scream and then come back in. And they think we're crazy. So God is really after the northern kingdom. They've went too far. He's going to judge them. The southern kingdom can still come out, but they don't. They follow suit. They go fall in headlong, you know. We use that old adage, right? If they jump off a bridge, you're going to jump off a bridge. Well, most of the time that's true now. I, I jumped off the bridge because everybody else did. Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. Every, I don't care what vocation you are or what walk a lot. You should still pursue the knowledge of God. Because that's the most important, important appointment you're ever going to have. You may have some appointments in this life that are pretty important. Maybe a job interview. Maybe a doctor visit. Whatever. But the most important... important that's hard to say together. The most important appointment... I still can't hardly get it out. The most important appointment that you will ever have is when you stand before God. You all go home try to say that about ten times. So he is going forth as established as the morning. He will come to us like rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. Now this brings us in to the feast. And I, you know, I grew up in a church where we sang about the latter and rain and the, and the former and the latter and the early rain, the latter rain and all that stuff. We really didn't know what we were saying, singing back then, because we had very little understanding of the Jewishness of Jesus 30 or 40 years ago, but we're learning that. And then he said, uh, O Ephraim, now he's calling the whole north Ephraim because they're the largest tribe, and O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? 
But now he's starting to turn his attention because he sees them straying as well. For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew, it goes away. And how many church folks do you think are like that in this country, or all over the world for that matter? They just do a little deed, or do a little showing up, but they don't live a Christian life. Their Christianity does not impact their overall life. It's just something they do on Sunday. There's a lot of folks like that. Just there for a moment and goes away. And then he says, Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And your judgments are like light that goes forth. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So that's what happens to people. You have an opportunity to minister to somebody through the week. You blow it off or I blow it off. We don't step into it. No matter what it is, whether it's witnessing or maybe you had a chance to help somebody. God set you up and you just blew it off. Maybe God spoke to you to help somebody financially or to go whatever. And you just blew it off. And then you come to church on Sunday and you think it's all better. That's what he's really saying here. It's not all better. He said, I, I want you to do the things that I'm bringing to you. I want you to show your love to others and have mercy on others. Instead of sac- and that's what Israel was doing. They was disregarding God all week. And then they would bring a sacrifice at a certain time or a certain moment and think that made everything good. Now, here's where Christianity is not. But this is, a lot, this is the nature of the flesh. God's asked me to do something here. I don't want to do it or I've neglected it or whatever. I don't feel like i got time. And then I, I'm, I'm over here away from that and I realize I missed what I was supposed to do. And so I run over here and try to do something to make up for that. That's human nature. But that's not how God operates. God, that's why he told Ephesus, he said, get back to your first love. Once you're right where you're supposed to be. So God wants us to come here and get this right and then move on. We don't go over here and make up for something we left undone. And that's why God is saying, he's talking to these guys, he said, you guys are just sacrificing, but it means nothing to me because you're not living your, you're not following me in your daily life. He says, he says, this like, they're like the dude, right? They, they've, Go by, and he says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice and knowledge of God more than burnt offerings, to learn of Him, to learn His ways. You know what Moses said? He said, Lord, teach me your ways. Teach me your ways. Reinhard Bonnke, who's going to be the Lord now, has probably won more souls to the Lord in the last 30 years than any other single man. I know it's the Holy Spirit doing the saving. I understand that. But God used him as that vessel. And I heard his testimony. You know what? He said he was, they said he was praying one time and he said he needed money for those crusades he did in Africa and needed like a million dollars to get stuff together. And he said the Lord asked him, do you want me to give you a million dollars? And he said, no, Lord, I want a million souls. Guess what come after that? The million dollars. Because God found a guy he could trust, right? He found a guy that was in it for the right reasons. And that's why Paul said, I can't send nobody else but Timothy because the rest of these guys, they all have hooks in them. That's how we would say it around here, right? They all, he said they're all in it for themselves. But Reinhard Bonnke was a vessel. He, I, I remember watching him one night on a talk show on a Christian channel, and they started pumping him up and trying to get him to do things like endorsements and stuff. He promptly dismissed himself from the talk and left the platform. That's a man God could trust because he wouldn't even let people blow him up. That, that's why God used him. He, he was so faithful. 
and their blinded eyes were opened in his services. A dead man was raised back to life that had been dead for three days inside the mortuary. They'd already started embalming him. That's why when they interviewed the embalmer, he couldn't do nothing but hold his head like this. He was so amazed that this guy was back to life. But your God can do anything, and we shouldn't be amazed by that. I mean, it's awesome that he did it. Two doctors that both signed off on his death certificate, he went back to visit them. They were freaked out. And one of them finally said, this has to be God. But why could God use a man that way? Because he was in it for God. That's why I tell you, the hardest person to offend is the person that's in love with Jesus Christ and doing it for Him. Nothing else. They're in love with Him. You know, if you love somebody, it don't matter what their flaws are. You know, Seth? If you fall in love with them, you're in. Now, Jesus don't have any flaws. Thank God He's fell in love with us. Right? We got all the flaws down here. But that's why you see these people that... That's, in love. I'm passionately in love with Jesus. And he's, he's trying to get Judah to turn. But like men, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt treacherously with me. This is God talking. Gilead is a city of evildoers and defiled with blood. Innocent blood. Innocent blood always gets judged in the Bible. Remember that. Innocent blood always gets judged. It may take a while. But if we could talk to Jezebel, she'd tell us. She killed an innocent man, had him killed. And the prophet said, they're going to throw you off this wall and the dogs are going to eat your flesh. And that's exactly what happened. She killed an innocent man, Naboth. Had him killed. Because they wanted his vineyard. Probably to grow pot in. They, they smoked dope back in those days. And Ahab was a big sissy. And he was crying on his bed one day, and Jezebel come in and said, What's wrong? He said, Naboth's got a vineyard, and he won't sell it to me. And the king had all he wanted anyway. That's greed and lust. And she said, I'll fix that. She went out and lied on him, had him stoned to death. And then the prophet whom they hated come by and said, Well, you've done it now. You're going to have, you're going to have yourself thrown off this wall, and the dogs are going to eat your flesh and tear it. God's judgment is sure, but innocent blood, you can write this down. I'm prophesying this to you tonight. Innocent blood will always get judged. And then he says, Gilead is a city of evildoers defiled with blood as bands of robbers lie in wait for a man. So the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Even the priests are in it. We've got preachers, priests, men of whatever. I'm not going to call them men of God. But men that are supposed to uphold God's law that are for abortion. Killing innocent blood. That's, that was going on back in Israel. Do you know if you go back and read the book of Judges, the Bible says the streets were dangerous. There were some roads in Israel you couldn't even go down. Because it was so bad. Crime. and That's how a lot of streets in our nation are getting. You can't even go down them. They, they can spot a foreigner a mile away, and you're a foreigner if you don't live in the neighborhood, and they know it. They can spot it, the way you're driving, the way you're looking around, and probably your tag on the back of your car. 
uh, as bands of robbers lying away for man, so the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they commit lewdness. That's all. Lewdness is generally sexual things. Sexual immorality. How much of that have we seen with whole denominations getting sued? Because of these young altar boys and stuff being... It's hard to even talk about. I've seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is harlotry of Ephraim and Israel is defiled. So he's going to judge them. They're getting ready to get judged. Then he says, also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed for you when I return the captives of my people. When I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered. And the wickedness of Samaria, for they have committed fraud. A thief comes in, and a band of robbers takes spoil outside. They do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Let me just say a word here. Just a, this, is, this is a tight word, but I'm going to say it nice, okay? If you're doing something that you know God, that's sin, and, it, and you think you're getting by with it, you're not. You're only, you're only experiencing a season of long-suffering of God. Just like He did with Pharaoh. Do you notice their lives wouldn't be in lost? God was messing with the livestock. He was messing with the fish. He was messing with the animals. All, there's a lot of aggravation, right? Flies all over the ground and everything. He was messing with a lot of things before He went after the people, trying to get them to return Trying to get Egypt to say, hey, trying to get Israel to come back. What do you he even said this about Jezebel? And Jezebel was a real person, but she also represents the evil side, right? She, that, that, that's a common way to use her. But in Revelation, the Bible says God gave her space to repent, but she wouldn't. He was going to allow her to repent. That's all God's after. He's after us to repent and turn back to Him. Israel's in trouble. They, they, God, if you think I'm getting by with something, you're not getting by with something. You're experiencing the long-suffering of God. Trying to get people to repent and stop and obey Him. In fact, let's go to Romans chapter 1. Let me just run you over there real quick. In Romans chapter 1. Uh, this is... Uh, a lot of stuff in Romans 1. A lot, of, a lot of churches today would like to tear that chapter out and not even have it in the Bible. I want to go to the end of it because I want to show you something that God says here. Speaking of His long-suffering. Um, Actually, let's go to chapter 2. After he talks about all the wrong and all the punishments going to come in Romans 1, he says, he talks to all of us, he says, Therefore you are inexcusable, old man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we've seen that a lot, right? People who point the finger at somebody else, they wind up being in the same shape. He says that you will, he says, and do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things, and he just talked about all that in the first chapter, and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God. So there's some kind of disconnect there, right? Maybe because they go to church and the person they're pointing the finger at don't go to church. But going to church is not our salvation. 
having a relationship with Jesus Christ and obeying Him, and that's our salvation. And then He says, or do you despise? Then He says, you who practice such things, doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God, or do you despise the riches of His goodness? That word "despise" means to make light of or to think it's useless. See, that's what I want everybody to understand. God is so patient, long-suffering. He don't just drop the hammer on somebody right off the bat. That's how he, tre- he even treated Pharaoh that way. And Pharaoh was, was not following God at all, but he was so long-suffering trying to get his attention. And then he says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? There may be some affliction at times, in, in our walk, but God is bringing us to places of repentance where we can grow. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself the wrath of God. You're treasuring up the wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteousness, judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. So the long suffering of God is about repentance. it's not that we're getting by with anything. If God's going to be just and righteous, He he has to judge sin. Now what God did is He judged our sin in His Son. And this is where I feel like I need to end tonight. So we'll come back to the prophetic sense soon. But He took His Son, hung Him on a tree, and placed all of our sin on Him. Now let let me walk you through that just for a second. You got his only begotten son. Now we're all sons and daughters, but there's only one begotten son. Only one only begotten. That's Jesus, right? Big arguments about that in theological circles. There's no argument. Jesus is the one. You and I are not the one. We're the point one uh, somewhere out there. He's the one, right? So God sent a perfect man. Now, Jesus fulfilled the law. He did it. He kept the law. Only person in the history of the world that could do that. He did it. He fulfilled it in Himself. He done everything right. He was perfect. So when He goes up to that cross, He's still a perfect man. So He said, no man takes my life, I lay it down. Why? Because sin was what brought death. So sin had no legal claim on Jesus. So that's why Jesus had to lay His life down, because He couldn't die. He lived a perfect life. Adam would have never died if he had lived a perf- lived like he's supposed to. So Jesus is there. Death can't do anything with him. So Jesus, the Bible says he gave up the ghost. He had to release the ghost or his spirit because de- sin had no claim on him. When it looked at Jesus, there was no sin. And so some point on that cross, everybody says what the preacher thinks. Somewhere on that cross, all of our sin was laid on him. I don't know when he felt, I, I think I know when he felt it, when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For the first time in the life of Jesus, he felt what it was like to have sin separate you from the Father. He didn't know that. He had no sin. So when he took our sin, I believe, this is what I believe, you don't have to believe it, you can throw us in the trash on the way out if you want to, but I believe when that set down, when our sin set down on him, he felt the separation of what sin does between man and God. And I'm so glad he did. Whew. We would still be in our sin. Your biggest problem is not your next paycheck. Your biggest problem in front of you 
is you've got an eternity to deal with. If you're lost, your biggest problem is not whether you get that next job. Your biggest issue is what you're going to say when you stand before God. I'm so thankful. So God hung all that on him, and he gave up the ghost. They came to make sure he was dead, and they said he's already dead. He gave up the ghost. Death had no legal claim on him. So the long-suffering of God, if you're going to hang your son or daughter on a tree to die for somebody else who's a scoundrel, how long-suffering would you be? If you paid that high of a price, how long-suffering would you be? And then how hot would hell burn for those who refuse it? When you hung your own son on a tree. He took our sin. All of my sin is on him. So that's why God's long-suffering. He wants you to understand and embrace and receive that the sin you may be involved in, that he's already paid the penalty for it in his son. So you don't need to pay the penalty. That's the good news of the gospel. It's good news with a reward. The reward is forgiveness, eternal life, relationship, all those, all so many rewards. But God, that's why He's long-suffering. He don't want you and I to pay the price for our sin when it's already been paid. That's stupid. How many of you are going to do that? You won't do it. You go down to the cow lot and buy a cow and then pay $600 for it or whatever. Then go back the next day and say, I'm just feeling good. Here's you another $600 for it. That'd be stupid, wouldn't it? <laughs> or go to the car lot and say, here, I'll give you $25,000 for that Volkswagen. And then go back the next day and say, I'm just feeling good. Here's you another $25,000. That ain't how this works. We ought to be the happiest people on earth. Because more than our sin on that tree, we got healing on that tree. Mm. We got peace from that. We got mercy and grace. We got eternal life. We got a hundredfold more in this life and the life to come. We ought to be the happiest, joyfulest people on earth. Because you can, you can have a lot, miss out on a lot of things in this life, but if you miss out on the forgiveness of God, you've missed it. Hey, there's going to be people in heaven, as we say where I'm from, I think you said around here, they didn't have a pot to pee in. But they love Jesus. There's going to be people in heaven that couldn't see down here on earth in the natural, but they can see now. There's going to be people in heaven from all walks of life, all stages of life, all situations in life. Because they said, I'll take that forgiveness that's on that tree and I'll make it mine. No greater slap in God's face than to deny His Son. Amen. I feel like that's where we ought to stop. We ought to leave here feeling the love and the power. God's going to judge, but you don't have to be judged. I don't have to be. I'm not, I'm not planning on being judged. You know why? Because when God comes into my room, if it's 2 o'clock in the morning, I listen. 
If it's 8 o'clock at night and he tells me to shut my book or turn my TV off, he's got something to say to me, I go listen. I think it's a good idea to listen to the one who rose from the dead on anything he's got to say to you. It's the greatest voice in the universe. And that's why I say from time to time, these people think they're smarter than God. You go rise from the dead and then we'll talk. But until you rise from the dead, I'm going to stick with the one that rose from the dead. That knows what heaven's like. He knows what hell's like. He knows what Satan's like. He, knows he, was, he helped create the earth. He was here when it was all put together. I'm taking him. He's the best scientist. He's the best lawyer. He's the best accountant. He's the best preacher. He's the best teacher. He's the best everything. I'm going to get my advice from him whenever he's offering it. Can you say amen? Let's give the Lord praise. Amen. Now, for those that say, well, I'm not getting much advice from God. Are you taking time to read this? Why would He talk to you if you've not took time to read this? Or listen to it. I listen to it all the time. I got my truck, listen to it all the time. So, why, if I sent you a letter and said, I'd like for you to read this letter, and then after that, we'll talk. And I call you and say, have you read the letter yet? No, I said, well, we'll talk after you read the letter. Why wouldn't God be that way? We want God to talk to us in an audible voice. And we won't even read the book of Jude. It's just like 26 verses. Be careful now. Make sure you know your Bible. Because when you get to heaven, you might be asked a few things. What if you sit down beside Habakkuk and he says, uh, what do you think about I, what I wrote? What the Lord gave me? And you look and say, I didn't even know you wrote a book. That ain't going to go over good. <laughs> or you get to heaven and say, let's all turn to the book of Noah, right? All right, Lord we, th- <laughs> Lord, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and mercy. Thank you for your kindness. We ask you to be with us. Help us to keep this joy that we have right now, Lord. We know the world's tough, but greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. You are the one. You are the one. Like, you, like John said, are you the one? Should we look for another? We're not looking for somebody else. You are the one. We're thankful that you forgave us of our sins and that that forgiveness is offered to everybody we know. Everybody that's ever been born can have that forgiveness and eternal life. So thankful, Lord, for you. In Jesus' name, amen.